Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, concluding the series on the deployment of British armed forces between Waterloo and the fall of Kabul, Professor Jeremy Black talks to the critics, Deputy Editor Graeme Stewart, about the themes, breaks and continuities that have shaped the British military over the last 200 years. Professor Jeremy Black, in this series we've been discussing over 200 years of Britain's armed forces from the aftermath of the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 through to the pullout from Kabul and looking to indeed where Britain's military future may lie. In in this episode, we want to look at some of the themes that have spanned this whole period. And I, I want to start by asking, as we look to what is now a very small British army, Is that in many ways a reversion to what we had for much of the 19th century, a relatively small army, uh, obviously a much larger navy, but is this a revert to a 19th century type or are we really now in a situation of of a very second-rate power with a medium-sized army? Well, first of all, I'm never sure how best to assess what one means by first-rate or second-rate. Um, because in many senses it depends upon the tasking that is put upon one and how far that tasking is realistic. Um, You're absolutely correct that in the, let's say, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, although the British had a very large army in India, principally composed of Indians, volunteers, um, the domestic army was relatively modest, and that was in part, as you say, because of the um, size of the Navy, but it was also because of the strength of the domestic economy, the leading manufacturing economy in the world with the employment opportunities that that represented, plus on top of that, emigration. Now in the 20th century, as you know, we only really had a mass army as a result of conscription and the aftermath of conscription. So you could argue that in many senses, what we've reverted to is a professionalized voluntary uh, military that isn't of any necessary size and it's more modest now than it was 15, 20 years ago. And as I've already suggested in these programs, it may well be that in terms of domestic security and the maintenance of law and order, um, the army possibly has been allowed to go down too small. On the other hand, um, it is a little difficult to see why um, an army that was significantly greater would Uh, be purposed for the roles that we have, unless we are assuming some kind of desire to remould the world, which I had thought we'd rather given up after the debacle um, of the Iraq um, escapade. Um, So in many senses, it depends upon what you are assuming. 
Um, if we look at uh, the, the period in the whole, and obviously we accept the two world wars in particular with uh, conscription and the experience of, of mass war are, are, if we just put those aside for one moment, and we look actually during the periods of peacetime in which um, government policies pursued various um, defence reforms, which for you, looking over this whole period, have been the most effectual in shaping the armed forces? I mean, I'm going to just suggest perhaps um, just before the First World War, uh, Haldane's reforms of the British Expeditionary Force being created in the, the Territorial Army. Would you say that's perhaps the one that you would most focus on or, or, or which else would you identify? Well, that's interesting. Again, it partly depends upon the taskings that are that are placed upon one. I mean, what's very instructive is that usually it's during periods of conflict that the effectiveness of the military improves. So if you look at pairs of wars, um, the Nine Years' War and the War of the Spanish Succession, the British did better in the second than the first. The War of the Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War, again, they did better in the second than in the first. And again, the French Revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars, they did better in the second than in the first. So part of it is the pressure of combat, how this forces to the four more effective commanders, gets rid of a lot of the dead wood, um, you know, leads to um, needs-driven reforms. Uh, linked to that, you could argue that one of the most effective periods of reform were those linked to the Duke of York, who was a Frederick Duke of York, who was not an effective field commander, we know that, but nevertheless uh, proved very effective in his reforms of the army in the 1790s, 1800s and 18-teens with a greater professionalisation of command, with a whole series of improvements, which I've written about in my recent book on the British Army in this period. So you could say that was a period of reform, that there was then a period of post-war stagnation. Um, and I think that, you know, the deficiencies of that were apparent in the early stages of the Crimea War. Although, as we know more recently, um, expeditionary warfare does tend to throw up the deficiencies of a system. And, you know, one has to always be careful about how one judges it accordingly. Um, as, as far as the army in accordance with what was a realistic set of goals for Britain, you could argue, or I would argue, um, that the late 19th century argue, uh, army was pretty good. I mean, the uh, British army in India uh, operated effectively both in India and wider um, in um, Asia and in East Africa. Um, the domestic army um, had difficulties in the early stages of the Boer War, but these were rapidly overcome. And by 1900, there were British troops in Johannesburg and Pretoria. So again, you, you've got to be careful about not extrapolating from the difficulties of the early stages. Um, I think the particular problems in the 20th century is that policymakers, including military policymakers, because as I've one of my themes throughout has been that the politicians who've been most powerful have been those wearing generals' uniforms, and not necessarily the most intelligent or impressive of the politicians. Um, in the 20th century, there's been marked expansion of ambition as to what can be achieved. And that has obviously drawn attention 
to the deficiencies of a mass army as opposed to a smaller scale professional army. Do you see any correlation between um, defence ministers, and I'm going back to the time before there was a, an MOD, so I'm you know, Secretary of State of War and so on, and uh, Admiralty. Um, do you see any correlation between uh, leading politicians uh, with responsibility to the armed forces who had served themselves, who had military experience themselves, and their performance and, and those that came from an entirely civilian perspective? Oh, you can get mistakes or successes in both criteria. I mean, I'm a great admirer of Sir Winston Churchill, but I don't think that many people would regard the Gallipoli campaign as his finest period, and yet he had had military experience. I mean, the point is that military experience does not necessarily entitle one to have strategic insight. Um, it does mean that you often get preening proconsuls, as we've seen in the House of Commons recently, who, you know, have been a colonel or lieutenant colonel or major and think that they are great strategists. Um, so one has to be aware that just because one has had command, it doesn't mean one is necessarily particularly perceptive. I mean, I, I would suggest to you that one of the most successful ministers in the 19th century at reconciling what the military could achieve um, and what it should be asked to achieve uh, was Viscount Palmerston. Now, Palmerston, as a young man, had played a role in military administration, but very much from the civilian perspective. Um, and I would have argued that he was, um, you know, highly intelligent, not least in knowing when it might be prudent not to intervene, as with the case of the American Civil War in 1861 and 1862, when there was pressure um, in each case to intervene. Um, you also have to bear in mind that because somebody might have had experience in the army, that doesn't mean they're necessarily perceptive about the Navy and vice versa. Um, so one has to be wary, just as, you know, you get all these kind of arguments. I was speaking at a conference a few years ago and a member of the public um, um, denouncing the politicians of the present day uh, argued that nobody should become a politician until they were over 50 and had a career doing something else. He clearly was over 50 and then had a career doing something else. And I had the temerity to point out that that would have left out, for example, uh, people such as William Pitt the Elder, William Pitt the Younger, um, Churchill, of course, um, and, you know, you've got to be careful. Now, Pitt the Younger had never served in the military. Pitt the Elder had been a cornet of horse in peacetime uh, and had then got sacked for his political uh, stance in the House of Commons. I'm not sure being a cornet of horse uh, actually equipped him to have intelligent or intelligible com comments about, about the military. Didn't stop him, of course. Um, but of course, so much is to do with um, the right moment. I mean, it's quite interesting. 1757 sees the disgracing of William Duke of Cumberland, uh, who is, if you like, the senior military figure, because he is in command of an outnumbered Hanoverian army that is defeated by the French at Hastenbeck, and he is then disgraced. Um, 
That doesn't mean that he was unfit to uh, be the senior military figure or to give advice on military matters, but it meant that, you know, having failed, he was out and strategy was increasingly dominated uh, as far as the army was concerned uh, by Pitt the Elder, as far as the Navy was concerned by the Admiralty Board. But again, um, the Admiralty Board was not always dominated by admirals who had had distinguished or often even very much war service. Well, I'd like to float an idea with you, which you should obviously feel free to shoot down. But that is, uh, in all the different aspects in which government has evolved itself uh, over the last 200 years, the difference between different parties in power, uh, Whig or Tory, uh, Liberal, Conservative, or, or Labour and Conservative, it, it, actually in defence policy, the, the influence of these different parties in power has perhaps been less than in, in many other domestic um, areas of activity. Is that fair? I mean, I'm just thinking almost at the top of my head of you know, wars of the 19th century or the 20th century and whether the other party uh, that was in opposition at that time, if it had been in power, whether actually defence policy and the wars in which Britain fought would have been that much different. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, first of all, um, there's been some specialist work for some of the periods. So if you're looking at the background to World War One, Andrew Lambert has done interesting work arguing that the Navy uh, was more dominated by liberals and the army more dominated by uh, conservatives and that the rise of the conservatives in the coalition uh, of the fought World War One was very much linked to army first interventionist on the continent policies. Um, I mean, that's a, 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 a you know, caricature of what is a very complex but very interesting argument, which I would urge people to read. Um, I myself have uh, written extensively on the 18th century, and I've argued that there were essentially in the early 18th century three different strands of politics with to do with foreign policy and and uh, the military what you might call government wigs opposition wigs and tories and the tories were very much in favor of blue water navalist policies they were opposed to british armies going onto the continent um, they were very wary about a build-up of the army and they were very wary about what they saw as excessive commitments to the security and interests of the electorate of Hanover um, and the government Whigs took very different positions. Now, I think it's fair to say um, that there's been a certain amount of contention about 18th century British foreign policy. Um, there was a period of attempting to argue that Hanoverian interests and British interests were synonymous. I don't think about uh, that that really carries much conviction, though it's helped the careers of a number of older scholars who argued that. Um, I think now one can see more accurately that um, there was actually quite a lot of blue water, as it were, between Tory and Whig attitudes on foreign policy. Now, if one comes to the Cold War, uh, the key element there, of course, is if you look at the Cold War of the 1920s, I mean, the Cold War really begins, as you know, we've discussed this uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, 
Labour was more willing to recognise uh, the Soviet Union than the Conservatives and had a different viewpoint um, on confrontation with, um, with uh, the Soviet Union. After World War II, I think it's fair to say that Labour um, was, and the Conservatives were both um, happy to oppose, keen to oppose uh, the Soviet Union um, in Europe, I think you might argue that the Conservatives for much of the 50s were keener on taking part in counterinsurgency conflict in the empire than maybe Labour was. Um, but once the empire ended, then that difference went. And I think it's fair to say that the Conservative Party itself had changed by um, the early 60s. Uh, Millen really changes it at the end of the 50s, but the early 60s as well. And, that, and you get those groups that had been committed to empire, many of whom had been very concerned to support the Suez commitment of 1956 and the people around Salisbury, Marcus of Salisbury, and the interest in um, Cyprus, etc. Um, this group lost power within the Conservative power, Party, and you get instead Europeanists, Macmillan's change, Heath, of course, uh, who really aren't interested in counterinsurgency struggles. So from that point, there is more of a equilibrium linking the Conservatives and Labour. But having said that, um, I think it's fair to say that you would have been entitled to assume that if Michael Foote had won the 1983 uh, general election, um, there might well have been a very different set of priorities uh, to those of Margaret Thatcher. And I think you could fairly say that if Jeremy Corbyn had won either of the general elections he'd fought, this would also have had a role. And given that the military are fundamentally driven by tasking, strategy is driven by tasking, so much of the debate about strategy is very second rate because it focuses on platforms, on what weapons to buy. But actually, the key question is, what are you seeking to do? That is the absolute key thing. And I think it's probable that there are greater differences there, but clearly there is a limit to what you can discuss in public. It is very difficult in a democracy to get up in public and say, I'm presenting the uh, Defence Review. Her Majesty's government is most committed to the defence of the home space the defence of Western Europe, our concern for the North Atlantic, and I have to tell you that we will only support initiatives elsewhere insofar as we feel able to and a part of an enabling alliance. You don't really say that sort of thing. It's much easier to say, oh, actually, we'd like to have a row about how many uh, frigates we build, because in a sense, having a row about how many frigates we build doesn't mean that we need to get drawn into well, what do we think we are actually supposed to be achieving in the Indian Ocean or the South China Sea or whatever. Um, and, you know, there seems to be on the part of some commentators a rather naive view that if you add 
to or subtract to or change to the number of platforms that therefore there is inevitably greater or lesser or different effectiveness. Actually, that's secondary to the question of whether you've set out a sensible priority that you can achieve. Well, we'll move beyond Westminster and Whitehall in a moment, but I want to ask just one last question uh, on this theme, and that is the creation of the Ministry of Defence in 1964, um, binding together what had been three separate ministries, the Admiralty, the War Office and the Air Ministry. How significant was that for defence policy and the fortunes of each of the three services as a consequence? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I would say that the logic of the Ministry of Defence was the idea of what we might call jointness, to use a later term. And obviously, jointness doesn't always work. I mean, I should imagine he'd like to be unnamed, but one minister involved in defence procurement said to me that as soon as... Um, uh, procurement comes in, all ideas of jointness goes out the window. Um, and he himself uh, tried to set an exercise in which each service would have to then make their claims on behalf of another service, as it were. But I mean, the practicality is that the Ministry of Defence has not always succeeded in providing the kind of cohesion that is necessary and that one would want. Um, on the other hand, um, what it has done um, is removed the situation whereby the individual service ministers were very much um, just mouthpieces for individual services. And that, of course, had all sorts of limitations and um, led uh, in part to what you might call an abiding fault, not just of defence, but of other aspects in Britain, um, which is the defence of legacies, you know, so that why do people de defend things or support things? Because that was historic funding. And let me make it very clear, that is by no means only a problem in defence. And I used to uh, be, a university, be in the universities, Historic funding, historic structures, historic practices are absolutely dominant and a high level of inflexibility there. So I wouldn't want you to think um, that the military is necessarily um, bad at this, but I think it was a problem and the Ministry of Defence has not necessarily solved that problem. Equally, to be fair to the Ministry of Defence, um, its capacity to generate strategy has always been affected by, and not necessarily in a positive way, by the somewhat incoherent way in which strategy is devised in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and linked to that by the difficulty of having an informed uh, debate. Um, and moving away from the expression of sectional or other interests, which I think is a real problem. Now, to a, to a degree, being allied to the United States, uh, which was a much stronger power, and being part of both NATO and a key member of the defense of, the, of Europe, 
has meant that the British, to a degree, have not had to face or confront the limitations in their strategic uh, conception, which, and again, you might link that to um, uh, the focus on platforms. One of the interesting things is the last defence review had some very informed and thoughtful people involved, people like John Bew, Alexander Evans, and I think most people who are informed would agree that it was considerably better, uh, not just impressive in its own light, but also considerably better than what had come before. Now, that itself is a judgment that doesn't necessarily reflect well on what had happened earlier. As you may know, uh, in the aftermath of um, the um, abandonment of Kabul, there was some very um, ill-informed uh, briefing against the latest um, strategic review, uh, politicians who didn't like it, military figures who didn't like it, saying, well, it needed to be torn up. Um, I think that's rather foolish because the, the uh, abandonment of Kabul has not actually changed uh, the fundamental nature of Britain's strategic requirements or foreign policy. Um, we've always been an ally of the United States, but obviously unable, as is right and proper, unable to dictate American policy. We shouldn't be able to dictate American policy. Um, and there is always, on top of that, the difficulty of the mismatch between policy and its implementation. Um, but I think that um, the latest strategic review, which I think it's fair to say was not one that the Ministry of Defence particularly owned, was more impressive than some of the earlier ones. Well, let, let's move beyond uh, the politics defence now and move more into the experience at the sharp end. And I'm wondering, as we look at the uh, 99 years between uh, the Battle of Waterloo and the outbreak of the First World War, um, the British uh, armed forces not fighting in Europe during this period, apart from obviously the, the, the rather mixed experience of the Crimean War, um, I, I wonder to what extent that really affected the style, the tactics, the way in which troops were recruited and motivated, the experience of, of army and navy life, um, not fighting in the European theatre, and when they were deployed, being deployed um, uh, globally, usually in uh, colonial encounters. Well, some things to say about that. Well, that's interesting, but uh, let's start off. I mean, the assumption of that remark appears to be that it was a bad thing that the British didn't acquire the experience by fighting in Europe. I'm not quite sure whom you would have liked the British to be fighting. Are you saying that in 1866 we should have come in with Hanover against German against Prussia and, Ger and German unification, or in 1864 with Denmark against the against the Prussians? Yes, um, I, I'm, I'm not volunteering. You're not volunteering. Um, I think that my, as you may know, I've written quite extensively on military history and, my, my, and on strategy, and I use the concept of fitness for purpose. I think the British military for the 19th century was essentially fit for purpose. I think that um, the, the uh, 
innovation uh, was uh, most pronounced, obviously, at sea, where the British leapfrog the early advantage the French have in such technologies as shell guns and iron cladding, and the British, you know, as it were, disinvest from their previous te naval technologies and embark into new naval technologies and do so with enormous success right up to the 1900s with the dreadnought revolution. And indeed, if you're looking at British innovation prior to World War One, I, I think you might also mention the Navy's role um, in developing uh, um, aircraft. So um, as far as the army is concerned, many of the tasks facing the army are extraordinarily difficult. I mean, the Indian mutiny, extraordinarily difficult. The Ethiopia expedition, extraordinarily difficult. Um, so I don't think that one should necessarily assume that the British Army was having an easy task. I mean, in many senses, organisationally, logistically and strategically, it is easier to operate within a three to five hundred mile ambit, which is that of which most of the continental powers we're talking about, rather than to have to consider um, operating or planning for operating in a great distance. So, for example, uh, when the British considered war with America during the American Civil War or immediately afterwards, they had to think how best to reinforce um, Canada. When in 1885 uh, they nearly went to war with Russia in the Penjdeh crisis, or in 1878 they nearly went to, uh, to war over the, uh, over the Balkans, over the Bulgaria crisis, um, you know, you're talking about really quite sophisticated planning. So I would not say, you know, there is the endlessly people can sing the Gilbert and Sullivan song about the major general or for that matter, the first Lord of the Admiralty. And those are jolly witty, uh, but they're not necessarily a adequate description of the situation. And um, there were areas of the army that were antiquated and it was necessary to reform them and important reforms were pushed through. I mean, um, you know, Cardwell gets his name for many of them, but Cardwell is not the only person um, involved. Um, and I think that although there were faults, what is interesting is that the faults were often initial operations, Islandwana against the Zulus, or the uh, retreat from Kabul. Uh, not, you know, people concentrate on the retreat from Kabul in the first Anglo-Afghan war, not the fact that the British then went back and, and got there again. Um, so I think one has to put these things in perspective. As far as other powers are concerned, um, the French did operate successfully in the 1850s, uh, in Europe against the Austrians, for example, as well as obviously in the Crimean War allied to the British. Um, but that didn't mean that they were able to do so against the Prussians. And of course, you, it's, the difficulty is to assess how you measure capability. The Prussians were lucky that they were engaged in sequential warfare, which of course is where Prussia or Germany, I should say, badly fails. Um, in both 1914 and 1941. I wonder, um, I wonder
wonder who the the um, the army, and we'll turn to the other services in a moment. But I wonder who the army have learned most from uh, fighting with their allies, in other words, learning from their allies or, or learning from their adversaries. Oh, that's an interesting one. Well. If you look at the process of military education, military education was preponderantly on the job. Now, as you will know, uh, part of the Duke of York's reforms with the development of formal educational schooling from the 1790s on, and that um, was valuable, most valuable, I would say, actually not in the army, but in a separate branch, the ordnance, the background of the artillery, where Woolwich, was really important and that was where because in the artillery you needed skills with mathematics you needed an intellectual sense whereas I think it's fair to say that the army officers of the late 18th and 19th century might well be very well read the Duke of Wellington was extremely well read on military matters but they weren't necessarily always thinkers and I don't think Wellington would have presented many of his colleagues as thinkers, if you see what I mean. Um, so learning on the job is important and learning on the job is in part a question of responding to the challenge posed by your opponents, but also being aware of what your allies are doing. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in the Peninsular War, uh, the British had to be more concerned about the French. They only, there was, although the Spaniards and the Portuguese they were fighting with have traditionally been underrated. I think it's fair to say they only had so much to treat, to teach um, the British. Um, once you get into the 20th century, then the process of military education uh, becomes more uh, formalized and there are new tasks to consider how best to respond to mechanization, how best to respond to heavy artillery, uh, how best to respond to air, um, air land coordination. Uh, so there's a whole, the, the need to think of the three-dimensional battle space. So there are a whole series of new tasks for the army. And in many senses, um, they are searching for doctrine, ideas, if you want to use that term, both from their own authors, thinkers, people like JFC Fuller, and from their image or understanding of, of other powers. I want to, to turn to the Royal Navy. If we looked at, at any of the three services, the Navy is the one that, um, in terms of raw numbers, is, is very much very much reduced. So you compare to 100 years ago or so, the number of surface ships in particular, uh, a fraction now of, of what it was it, almost at any previous time in its history of course the firepower delivered per ship is now vastly greater but th that, that's a separate point would one still say nevertheless uh that the royal navy is britain's senior service not just in historical sense but in terms of actually the most important of uh of, of the free um services well, the Navy certainly, as you know, disposes of controls, I mean, controls the use of the nuclear deterrents. So that's a very important factor. Um, 
And the transfer of that from the Air Force to the Navy, I think, was very significant. The Navy's importance has also grown since the Cold War as a result of interest in power projection towards more distant areas. Um, but the Navy does have, I mean, you know, again, I've written quite extensively on the Navy and I would generally regard myself as a navalist, but the Navy does have a sort of pretty major limitation in that um, it's of no value whatsoever for dealing with insurrection or other problems within Britain or indeed any other state, um, other than providing an offshore platform, which can be useful, but only so far. Um, and I mean, you know, Harold Nicholson's point, which wasn't original, you know, Harold Nicholson's point, you can't send the Atlantic fleet to Linz. I mean, that was a point that was being made in the 18th century. You can't have British warships going up the Elbe and bombarding Breslau, um, you know, uh, Rocklau, the capital of Silesia. Um, so um, I think that the Navy, the Navy, like the Army, requires a war to suit it. Um, and one of the great problems for military thinkers in all societies and in all areas is that all too often they plan for the wars that they want rather than for what might be coming. And that's understandable, but it's also shallow and inadequate. Um, now, I think it's fair to say uh, that what that does is properly put an emphasis on flexibility in manpower, the ability to man very different systems and to operate in very different uh, tasks and environments, and that that is more important than the platforms you use. So ultimately, it is skilled and determined manpower that is the most important factor rather than the the machine you've got um, now nobody wants you to have a worse machine than your opponent but nevertheless the machine itself has its limitations because it can lead you to try and fight in a certain way that may be inappropriate looking at all three of the services how has the, the social composition particularly of the officer class changed if it has changed and in terms of recruitment, you know, one thinks of the sort of port cities where sailors naturally come from, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, towns and cities where there are barracks nearby tend to have a tradition of, of recruitment to the army there and so on. Have these patterns actually changed very much over the last hundred or more years, or are really is, is recruitment outside periods of conscription? Is, is recruitment coming from the same um the same uh geographic areas and and similar social groups as it has a, 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 at any other time oh that's very interesting um officer corps became i would say more meritocratic um from the 2000s uh, i think it's fair to say there i don't mean by that that there weren't able people before that uh, but i think that um there was a greater emphasis on meritocracy uh, from the 2000s. As far as recruitment is concerned, if you go back to the 19th century, uh, a large chunk of the British Army uh, was actually Irish. Uh, 
in population terms within the British Isles, England was underrepresented and Ireland and Scotland were overrepresented. And in part, that was to do uh, with the limitations of the agrarian uh, uh, economies in those areas. Uh, in part, that was to do with patterns of behaviour. Uh, but in part also, these things were constructed, you know, that as it were, you change your attitude to the recruitment of Catholics, you therefore enable more Irish soldiers to have be in the army. So it's, uh, there isn't an immutable socioeconomic uh, uh, change. Um, clearly, as you will know, I mean, uh, a certain number of uh, people from the Republic of Ireland volunteered in World War II to serve in the British Army. They were then treated appallingly by the Irish government subsequently, but that's par for the course with the Irish government. Um, the, um, I think it's fair to say that precisely because um, recruitment has become, as it were, has has had to fill um, smaller smaller holes, if you like. Um, there hasn't been the need to reach out to totally different constituencies. In some areas, there's been success. The armed forces, I mean, they could do more, but the armed forces has been successful in recruiting women. It has been successful in recruiting members of ethnic minorities, but in both cases, it could do a lot more. I think if you're looking at it geographically, um, I would say that London and the Southeast um, is underrepresented, but you would expect that both because um, it is uh, an, an area of greatest economic opportunity and because historically it has not been core areas for military recruitment. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the REF uh, as, as well. Um, we, we've talked in previous episodes about its future, but I, I want to um, take a, a sweeping view you know, from the age of the, of the biplane uh, through to the, you know, the Vulcan bombers and beyond. Are we now in a time where really the, uh, the, 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 the fighter, uh, as distinct from uh, using rockets or using um, uh, uh, bombers, the, the, the role of the fighter is, is limited, and we see that perhaps in the uh, failure of the government to really commit enough money to, to the new typhoon, or um, will, will, will that role of the fighter as, as well as the, the, the bomber uh, still uh, be a, a thread that runs through the, the, the history and future of the RAF. Well, that's very interesting. I did a book on air power and it came out, I think I'm right in saying, in either 2014 or 2015. And I was speculating at the end of that whether air power had a strategic role as opposed to a tactical and an operational role. And I think that remains still a question. Uh, even more, I mean, obviously I discussed drones in that book, but even more now the question of whether um, unmanned um, and therefore um, they can be more readily fired with, uh, from smaller platforms, but unmanned uh, aerial vehicles will fulfill 
many but not all of the roles of air power. Interestingly enough, the one that they're least able to fulfill is the one that tends to be least talked about, um, which is aerial transport. And if anything, the most important aspect of air power is the ability to deliver, uh, helped by aerial refueling, men and equipment around the world very rapidly, far more rapidly than by sea. And that aspect of air power, I think, will remain important um, and underrated by most members of the general public. Um, as far as air power uh, otherwise is concerned, manned aircraft, I'm not sure um, how much long, they have a long-term viability. Um, it may well be that it's as part of directing uh, swarms of drones. I mean, drones themselves have limitations. They can be shot down. They can be um, their their electronics can be interfered with. But then the same thing is true of manned flight, and manned flight is a lot more expensive. So. Um, one of the reasons sometimes you keep it up with the technology, you could argue this for battleships in World War II, is if the other side has the technology. You know, if they have battleships, then you need battleships. Um, uh, and that, I think, was a reasonable view in, let's say, 1942, 43, uh, 44. Um, so I can see why people would want to invest in aircraft now. What I'm not sure about is how valuable that investment is compared to what else you can spend the money on. Um, aircraft, I've argued, are most valuable at sea when the uh, number of targets you can engage with and that exist is necessarily limited. And if you can sink them, then you have actually won. Uh, that is much harder on land. Uh, let me end with a question about an aspect of the armed forces, which uh, we haven't actually addressed in, in this series, and that is the reliance of civil authorities within the UK uh, on the armed forces. Uh, I wonder if you could summarise, uh, not just now, but, uh, but certainly over the last 50 or 60 years or so, um, how important the armed forces are to uh, civil authorities in terms of keeping order, but, but also in other respects of uh, you know, keeping the utilities upon which people depend uh, functioning within the British Isles? Oh, well, I think that's an absolutely crucial role of the military. And I think that that ranges from um, the ability to suppress um, rebellion, which obviously was the case in Northern Ireland, uh, and indeed helps to explain the significance of the military around much of the world. I mean, much of the world, the military's prime function is the arm of the state against rebellion, not engaging in war with other powers. But as far as Britain is concerned, so that element, um, then there is, of course, the element of the civil emergency, uh, foot and mouth disease, for example. Then there is the element of um, support for the civil power against industrial disruption, uh, the Labour government in the late 40s, for example, using troops against a dock strike. Um, the, uh, obviously, the Blair government thinking of using troops against um, petrol drivers and so on. Um, 
And I think that given the limitations and anxiety about the limitations about civil order, this may become more significant and certainly more significant in terms of the use of the army. Well, we'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid, but it, it's been a, a real pleasure to discuss with you over these various episodes the different aspects of uh, the British Armed Forces since Waterloo. Um, for taking us through these many different aspects, I want to thank you, Professor Jeremy Black. Your new book, A Short History of War, is published by Yale University Press uh, later this month, and uh, uh, we'll read that with great interest. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.